All right, so let's pray. Father, thank you that we don't have to be left in the dark. We don't have to be left clueless. We have your word. Your word has always been sufficient from eternity past, God. Thank you that, um, your, that through your word, we know uh, the, the, the roles, the functions of, of, of elders, of deacons, how they build our church up, how they serve us well. Um, and um, Lord, just help us see that, that it's a joy uh, to glean into the wisdom of these groups and to get alongside deacons to serve them um, in, in different area, areas, whether it's homebound or parking and greeting. Um, there's just so many areas. And so, Lord, just help us just get off the sidelines and, 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 and actually get in the game of serving alongside them. And uh, for all of those who are uh, uh, just who are elders, Lord, um, Lord, I just pray that you would continue to protect them, for them to guard their life and doctrine well, and, and more than just shepherding us, which is so important, Lord, I pray that you would continue to uh, give them grace to shepherd their, their wives and families well. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to begin by asking a question, who makes the decisions of the church? Who makes the decisions of the church? Kind of a straightforward question, but... Okay. <laughs> okay. Okay. <laughs> okay, congregation, Brad, staff. Yeah. I'm sweating everyone. Okay. That's right. It's a good answer. I mean, God sending Christ, who did Christ purchase? He purchased saints. It's actually a great answer. Anyone else? Elders and deacons. So we're going to think about a very important topic that aids us in that very question, and the topic is church governance, uh, something in many evangelical circles that probably is not at the forefront of, of people's minds, but why church governance? Why church governance? Well, it's crucial, to our, it's crucial to our health as a church. It teaches us what is faithful to Scripture in regards to offices and their relationship to one another, specifically in terms of promoting unity. That's why God has really designed those uh, categories to begin with. Of course, elders are to be under shepherds. They are to serve. They are to lead. Deacons are to uh, serve and, and, and so forth. But at the end of the day, it's, it's to promote unity. It's to build one another up. It's to equip you to do the work of the ministry. And so the more we know how these offices work, how church governance works, the better we can uh, adjust the way we live as church members to promote unity at UBC because that is one of the top things we need to be known as as, as a watching world is looking in uh, into our lives and into our churches that we are a church built on unity, not unity around you know uh, a, a list of preferences because that's false unity, not not unity on what secular dic uh, our secular society dictates, but rather on uh, truth and around truth. And so that where ultimately is where unity is at. So church governance defined. Church governance is the system by which decisions are made in a local church. Church governance is the system by which decisions are made in a local church. In other words, it's where authority resides. It's where authority resides. So think, for example, of the question of what should we put in our statement of faith as a church? How we decide that question ultimately depends on our system of governance. So church governance can really be a great tool or an avenue for unity, but it also can be a great tool for disunity in many churches. If you think of who holds decisions making authority in a family, for example, it shows how crucial this concept is. So when kids want to have ice cream for dinner and they stay up until 1 a.m., they need to be reminded that actually it is not them, and especially the ice cream they are they're eating, but it's actually the parents who are in charge. I mean, it's the same thing. So Jessica and I, we don't, we don't have kids. We have a, a little Australian shepherd, a blue Merle, and you know Milo is not in control of our lives as much as Milo wants to think that. And so the worst thing we could do is allow that dog at 12 o'clock at night to drink a bowl of water and then dictate our sleep. And so... Uh, in the same way, uh, it's not Milo, it's not our children and grandchildren, but it's good godly authority in parenting uh, where the authority resides. And so similarly, I think we need to know who holds authority in the local church and why. So church governance, uh, first and foremost, is important because 
it's revealed in God's word is the very foundation of things. We don't have to allow, again, secular culture to dictate what leadership is in the church, nor do we have to be left clueless in the dark, gravitating to bestsellers to define what that means. Instead, God has given us his word, and so in that word, he speaks on every topic pertaining to life and godliness, and of those topics, we have church governance. And so he is glorified as we follow his instructions, and as we do, proper authorities should protect and prosper the unity of our church at UBC. So this morning, we're going to be looking at those two main offices of the church given in Scripture. We're going to be looking at not elder, but elders, a plurality of elders and deacons. So, and then after that, we're going to be looking at the congregation's role uh, as the final decision-making authority here on earth and how those three groups, the congregation, elders, and deacons, work together to promote unity at UBC and how we can maximize the love and witness of our church because it's so, so important. So uh, the first group that we're going to look at And ironically, we have two of them this morning, which not only encourages me, but furthermore makes me sweat like no one's business. So I'm thankful for those brothers. I'm thankful for Howard and Wes. So uh, the term elder or overseer or bishop or pastor, they're actually used interchangeably. It's not like there's like some super six flags group called elders and then there's pastoral staff. Okay, it's just one group elders, who are pastors, who are bishops, who are, who are overseers in the Greek being used interchangeably in scripture. So what do they do? What do they do? What are they to represent? Well, the first thing is that elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. Elders are charged with the spiritual oversight of the church. So in Acts chapter 20, verse 28, Paul tells the Ephesian elders this, pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock, not to a subset, not to a specific group, but to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. Not just there, we also see in Acts chapter 6 that elders should especially devote themselves to the ministry of prayer and the word. And they're also charged with being the principal governing body of the church, according to 1 Timothy chapter 5, uh, verse 17, who said, oh, in, in which this verse says, the elders who direct the affairs of the church well are worthy of double honor. They're worthy of double honor. Again, not two groups of elders, one group of elders who are ruling and leading well for the glory of God and for our good as a church. So... There are really four ways that biblical eldership promotes and preserves unity in the church. Four ways in which biblical eldership promotes and protects unity in a church. Uh, First, this elder model of leadership places authority in those most qualified to exercise it. So in other words, there are qualifications of Scripture. Because they are in Scripture, they matter. And so there is a standard set forth which promotes that unity. It's not just you know, a a certain group of people in the church who are creating a certain standards for people to follow. God is clear in his word. First Timothy uh, chapter three, Titus chapter one, it's there six through nine. And so there are qualifications in scripture set forth. And these men, these above reproach men have to meet them by God's grace, not according to their merits. And so just like you probably wouldn't trust your medical uh, care to someone without an MD, Uh, The church is assured that those who are in charge with the most significant responsibilities have met certain biblical criteria set uh, set forth specifically in the pastoral epistles that establish their character, and more than their character as well, their ability to serve, both in the word and in prayer. And again, this fosters unity because there's a common standard set in place. So for example, why Wes? Why Howard? It's because by God's grace, as the Holy Spirit empowers them, they are fulfilling those qualifications. Again, not because of how amazing their wives are, which they are, all right? Not because of uh, their, you know, uh, personality or what they've done in life, but because what God has set forth in these above-reproached men. Second, elder leadership places special responsibility for the spiritual health of the membership in the hands of those who have special accountability to God. So just kind of think 
just two things I would write, special responsibility and special accountability. Special responsibility and special accountability. Again, that responsibility to the health of, uh, of church members and that accountability ultimately, not just to the church, but to God, to God. So again, right out on Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17, we read that elders are specifically to keep watch over you as men who must give an account. And who are they to give an account to? Well, not just to the flock, who they are to be examples of, but ultimately, who do, who do elders give an account to? Who do pastors give an account to? God. That's how serious it is. This means that if we have godly pastors, godly elders, they will lead us as men who first and foremost don't fear you and don't fear me, but they fear God. And to have that sense of reverence and weightiness in serving and leading us. Because God holds them responsible to obey passages like Ephesians chapter 4, verses 12 through 13, which says that the, the pastor's primary job is to prepare us as the church for works of service so that we can reach or attain the unity of faith. It's to equip you. A third way that elder leadership promotes unity is through God's requirement that members obey their leaders and submit to their authority through God's requirement that members obey their leaders and submit to their authority. Again, piggybacking off of Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17. And so when we submit together uh, to authority together, it actually promotes unity, which seems like a hot-button topic in our culture, the idea of authority. We usually don't like that for some reason, and, it, and um, we usually push back. But really, just think of it really as the posture of submission, Submission, instead of like puffing us up in pride, it actually makes us more humble and less headstrong because in our flesh, naturally, according to our sinful nature, we're more headstrong and less humble. And so just think about it from the posture of submission. So like in our home, in our relationship with God, in our workplace, a humble recognition of rightful authority actually brings benefits. So just think about it. <laughs> just think about it from a work standpoint. If you're never humble and you never submit to your boss, and I'm not saying it's just for an earthly blessing or an earthly benefit. Please do not hear me say that. Um, but for example, if you're uh, a, a boss or a manager uh, at J.B. Hunt and you're never humble towards your boss and you're constantly puffing up in pride and you never submit to him or her, you're never going to be promoted in your job. Okay. So I, I, I think, it, and, and it certainly doesn't foster unity. And so I think in, in the same way, us submitting as a church to our elders has its benefit with the primary benefit of being unified. So Hebrews chapter 13, verse 17 says this, Obey them, them being elders, so that their work will be a joy. Go ahead. Right. Uh, so, yeah, so that's crucial. So I, I, I would think, so I think it's a great question, and I think the people who are watching the elders are the elders themselves. So, for example, as someone who's had the benefit of kind of like looking in as, as an intern, and man, those were some long, long nights, a lot of coffee. But anyways, I would uh, look in. Um, I know I'm not trying to make, like, face contact with, with Howard because he knows. So... Um, <laughs> The good thing is, so for example, I'll use Howard for example. You have Howard and you have Brad, all right? <laughs> Howard is not Brad. Brad is not Howard. You throw Wes in the mix. Wes thinks differently from those brothers. So why it's so crucial, yes, you're right. The congregation is to hold eldership accountable and to speak into that, especially pertaining to doctrine. If they're preaching a false doctrine, think of, think of Galatians chapter 1. The reason why you have to have a plurality of elders and those elders are holding them accountable is that um, it's not one single God leading the ship because that's now how God is ever uh, meant to create that. And so I've seen in plenty of meetings where other elders in grace and in charity uh, push back on one another and hold one another accountable. Yeah. It's a good question, actually. So, Now, lots of people 
are uncomfortable with the idea of authority anywhere, not to mention a church. Because let, let, let's just be honest, we've all had bad experiences at a church, every single one of us. And we've seen bad, bad, excuse me, bad leadership on display as well. Authority can be abused, and perhaps many of you have seen bad or ungodly examples of abuse of authority from maybe a demeaning husband or wife, or memories of an, you know, an earthly parent who used authority for his or her own personal glory and for their own amusement. So sadly, authority can be sinfully misdirected and it can be abused. But God invented good, godly authority. And it's for our good as a church at UBC. And it's also good for all of us members individually because learning to trust authority is good for us spiritually. It builds us up in Christ. And in the church, when elders' authority is used with the consent of the local church, with the consent of the congregation, for the good of that congregation, the congregation will always benefit as God's people. So as members, we're called to submit, and that's not a bad thing. It's a good thing. It's a godly thing. It's, it's built up into the character of God. But the other side of that is that elders are called to exercise their authority rightly, not wrongly, not for their own personal glory, for their own personal advantage, but for you. So in 1 Peter chapter 5, Peter addressing the elders tells them, be shepherds of God's flock, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. Mm-hmm. That's right. That's, right. <laughs> That's a good word. <laughs> yes, ma'am. Come on. That's right. So they're supposed to protect. They're supposed to be tender in their leading, you know. I mean, I think you're exactly right. You know, it's taking on that metaphor of a shepherd to a sheep. So, that's good. Very good. So, really, elders are to be servant-hearted and exhibit the same humility that my sister was just speaking about that Christ, the good shepherd, exhibited. You take Christ out of the equation, it's going to be bad leadership, always. Fourth and finally, the biblical model of elder leadership promotes unity about what I was kind of talking about earlier, by establishing not one singular elder, but a plurality of elders, instead of having leadership of the church rest heavily on one man's shoulders. So one man, uh, multiple, yes. In Acts chapter 14, verse 23, we read this, Paul and Barnabas appointed elders for them in each church, and with prayer and fasting, committed them to the Lord in which they had put their trust. Again, uh, we won't read all of the verses, but we have Acts 14.23, Acts 16, chapter 4, Acts chapter 20, verse 17, Acts chapter 21, verse 18, Titus chapter 1, verse 5, James chapter 5, verse 14, and even Philippians chapter 1, verse 1, thinking of that greeting, uh, Paul talking about the overseers in plural and the deacons at the church at Philippi. And so it's all over the place affirming a plurality of elders. And again, God designed that in place because it's not one man supposed to be leading the ship. It's supposed to be a plurality and not just any man, but an above reproach man saved by grace through faith in Christ alone. So how does having multiple elders foster unity in the church? How does having multiple above-approached men following Christ, serving you, leading you well, how does that promote unity? That's right. I am sick of how good your answers are. It makes it a lot easier, honestly. It really does. 
So decisions made by the elders collectively rather than by a single elder are more likely to have the support of the entire congregation because we know it's not one person's agenda. Hopefully it's the plurality of elders bringing something forth. So kind of think of like an old proverb, like Proverbs 15 verse 22 that says, plans fail for the lack of counsel, but with many advisors, they succeed. Having plural elders means that elders must have humility as they relate to each other and their humility should be a model for us as the church. Now, the other side is that is that a plurality of elders increases the member's confidence in the decision-making process while alleviating the pastor from bearing all the criticism for decision because they're coming forth the, uh, before the body. Think of those quarterly church conferences as a whole, as a group, as a team. Also, a plurality of elders enables the leadership to know the congregation better instead of just one person. It's easier for multiple elders to know and care for different parts of the congregation than just a single pastor. I'll give an example. It was really hard. So um, I think my last day is Tuesday at Bonefish Grill, and uh, I was a server uh, there for a season. I'm transitioning to um, transportation and logistics at Tyson, and so it's been a great process. Thankful to the Lord and for many of your prayers, but um, when COVID hit, um, it, it was a really, really, you know, tough time, and, you know, it would have just been impossible for just Brad to minister to me during that time, uh, which, he, you know, he did, but I'm thankful for a plurality of elders in place, because uh, when I was drawing unemployment for a season, which was, you know, really tough, I had people like the two very men in this room, with Howard and Wes, Ben Evans, Clay Morton when he was serving as an elder, Stephen Martin, and so forth, uh, praying with me fervently, checking on, in on me, trying to give me wisdom. And so um, it's a good thing because I got to know them better through that process. So, um, yeah, don't put all the weight and shoulder just on one elder. You have a plurality of elders. And so uh, Howard and Wes, for example, they have equal authority and weight just as uh, a staff elder. So I would encourage you to just pray for them and reach out to them. And I know they want to know you better. And so... I think so. Well, I think, I think honestly, it's, it's why it's really important to have that balance of, of staff and lay is to make sure, you know, again, it's not one, you know, specific agenda being set forth. And what I'd also say is, like, absolutely, you know, um, elders, I, I know for a fact our elders, for example, if there's a hospital visit, they want to do everything they can, you know, to meet that. But specifically, even our deacons, you know, deacons of member care, you know, want to do that. But uh, with that being said, also, it's important and, and, and a heavy reminder for all elders to, uh, to realize that, you know, we can't meet every hospital visit, every home visit, but it is problematic uh, if we never do. And so, um, so it's always good for self-evaluation, I think, for every elder to consider, you know, uh, you know, I can't meet every need, I can't meet every hospital visit or every surgery that happens in the church, but am I doing any by God's grace? And so we need to always consider that. And so those are good, 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 good feedback. So how does this understanding of the office of elder change the way we live as a church? Well, first, we should obey our elders and submit to their leadership. It's a given. The elder's authority in this regard is tied to the faithful teaching of Scripture. And so Hebrews chapter 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders who spoke the word of God to you. Now, does this mean that an elder can tell you absolutely everything in the small preferential details of life and beat you to a pulp and say, you are going to do this? Can Howard or Wes say, no, you are buying a Toyota, not a Chevrolet? Well, ultimately, no. Okay? Like, or... (laughs) 
I mean, it would be like someone saying, I know you like George Strait. You have to like Willie Nelson. Well, absolutely not. And I don't know many people, honestly, who do like Willie Nelson. So, honestly, you do. That's all right. We've got, well, I love it. Congregationalism, brother. That's right. <laughs> I love congregationalism. Anyways, elders have the authority to lead the congregation by explaining the word of God and applying it to specific circumstances. It's their duty. They provide godly wisdom based on scriptural principles and truths, and so that should just drive us in joy as members to obey them in so much as they continue in sound doctrine and exhibiting godly lives around that doctrine. Again, if they don't continue in that, that's when things become problematic, and as a congregation, we've got to step in, and we've got to step in quick before it spreads like wildfire. Second, we have to strategize to make elders work a joy and not a burden. All right, they already have enough burdens on their shoulders. What are we doing to navigate the waters in such a way where we're being an encouragement to someone like Howard and Wes? And that could even be an encouraging text message of just some scripture for them to continue the work of eldering. So look for ways to do that. And part of that involves the the perception that we create of the elders in the eyes of others, particularly newer Christians, Christians that just joined the church, the way that we talk about elders to others, and the way that we engage with elders at members' meetings. So it doesn't mean we never ask questions of the elders or ask them to explain or to clarify something that they have said, both in the past or in the present. It means that we do so in a way that assumes the best and helps others get in line with how the elders are leading. So ask yourself, how you talk about your pastors over the phone, on social media, around coffee, or in your get-togethers really shows how you view them and how you view their work. So ask yourself, what dominates your conversations when someone brings up Brad, when someone brings up Howard, when someone brings up Wes? What dominates those conversations? Is it love? Is it grace? Is it admiration? Is it prayerfulness? Or is it something sinful? Third, consider the qualifications of those put forward as potential elders. Although we should give the elders' recommendation of a prospective new elder great weight, we should also make an effort to get to know the elders that are put forth in some of these conferences. And so if you don't know a prospective elder at all, seek the opportunity between the time the person is nominated and the time when the congregation votes on him, which is usually around, I don't know, two, three months, something like that, to talk to him, to ask him questions. So open up that directory, pray for him, and inquire of him. So ask him, you know, when did the Lord save you? When, like, when all of a sudden did you aspire to this office of an elder? How are you walking with your Christ, up oh, with Christ? How are you, you know, if you're not committed to singleness, how are you shepherding your wife? So if there's something of concern of that individual's ability to lead the congregation, again, one of the congregational duties that we have, let the elders know. Let the elders know about a red flag. So eldership. And now, let me stop here. Do we have any questions so far? Okay, we'll keep trucking along. Deacons, deacons. In the New Testament, the Greek word can be translated as deacon or servant, to, in referring to service in general. So deacons actually attend to the practical details of the church life, of church life, things like administration, maintenance, and the care of church members with physical needs. Which leads to a, a crucial question. How does a proper, or proper meaning a biblical understanding of the relationship between deacons and elders foster unity in the church? Elders, deacons, how does that relationship work together, and how do they promote unity in the church? Well, can I get a volunteer to read Acts chapter 6? Acts chapter 6, and we'll look at verses 1 through 5. Ending in verse 5, you can just end after the word gathering. You don't even have to list um, all the names. But chap Acts chapter 6, verses 1 through 5, just a volunteer to read.
That's good. Awesome. Yeah, can you imagine uh, those being the names of your grandchildren? Anyways. Hey, thank you for reading that. Yeah. Um, so there's a few things, some wisdom that we can glean into this passage that was just wonderfully read, okay? The first thing is that deacons care for all the members of the church uh, in terms of those physical needs. Deacons care for all the members of the church. Their work among the widows in Acts chapter 6 was important because there was physical neglect among the Grecian widows, uh, which was causing literally what we just read, spiritual disunity. There's disunity. One group of Christians was beginning to complain against the other group and in a particular dangerous way along cultural lines, which was uh, you know, detrimental to unity in that particular church. And this seems to be what caught the attention of the apostles. And so in attending to all of the widows uh, present in that church, the deacons diffused the situation, and by diffusing the situation, making sure there was e equitable distribution among the widows, unity was on display. Second, the deacons in Acts allowed the apostles to devote their time to the ministry of the word and in prayer, which we see in verses 2 through 4. And so really, in the same way, deacons play the same role in support of the ministry of the elders. To be sure, an apostle and an elder is not the same thing, okay? But in following kind of like that pattern as the New Testament unfolds with churches being planted and being multiplied, it seems that deacons are playing the same role in the support of the ministry of elders or pastors. So uh, deacons humbly pursuing their service while elders teach and lead and pray, uh, each embracing their God-given role. And in doing so, the elders or the pastors are able to focus on their duty of the word and in prayer. Again, a weekly thing, not just a Wednesday thing. Finally, a third way that deacons cultivate unity is by distributing work throughout the congregation. By distributing work throughout the congregation. Again, deacons coordinate volunteers for particular needed ministries in the church, such as providing rides for the elderly, having members uh, get alongside them to visit the homebound, or setting up even Onyx Coffee on Sunday mornings to assist our church members. That's right. <laughs> That's awesome. That's awesome. Good, good, good. And again, it's such an encouraging thing is, is you as members of the congregation saying that about our deacons. I mean, um, we've got some good ones, so that's awesome. Ask yourself this morning this. Where am I serving in the life of the church? Am I quick to serve or to be served? Am I seeking ways to be served or am I finding ways to get alongside our deacons in various capacities and in different areas of the church to serve and to free up time for our elders to do the work that God has called them to do. So a few implications of that deacon work before we close with congregationalism. First, this understanding of deacons should inform our selection of deacons. The understanding of deacons should inform our selection of deacons. Again, if deacons are ones to foster unity in our church at UBC, then those who serve in this capacity should not be dividers, but they should be people that unite around the truth. They shouldn't be concerned about protecting their own turf, if you will. They should not be the kind of folks who are always lobbying for their big idea to be the theme of this particular church. But instead, deacons come on behalf of the whole to serve particular needs with a sense of contributing to the whole body. And second, or lastly, we should, as members, support the deacons by volunteering in their various ministries. And in so doing, we promote unity in the church by encouraging the deacons, serving the body, and helping in distributing the work evenly. All right, we got a final topic. 
Congregationalism, we're going to kind of go through this quickly, and hopefully we see the interrelationship among these groups, okay? So, so far we've considered the church offices. We've considered the office of elder. Again, elder, bishop, overseer, pastor, all being used interchangeably in Scripture in the New Testament. And then we've also considered the role of deacon and how uh, they are of service to the church. But what about church government, particularly the form of church government? Who should have the final say on matters in the church? Well, it's kind of straightforward. It's the church. The congregation has the final authority in three particular significant matters in church life. Again, if it's not in your handout, write these down. Very important. Discipline, membership, and doctrine. Discipline, membership, and doctrine. We know from Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 through 17, that the congregation has the final say on matters of discipline. If one member has sinned against another and refuses to listen, even after being confronted by other members, particularly a a sin that's being marked by their life and unrepentance, Jesus says in Matthew 18, verse 17, tell it to whom? The church. Similarly, in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we see that it's only the congregation that has the authority to discipline a member. Again, what we've seen in quarterly church conferences uh, and it breaks our heart. It should break our heart. It shouldn't make us you know, puff up in pride or make us snicker. When an elder brings forth someone potentially for someone like discipline, one, it should break our hearts. Secondly, we should be praying for repentance on behalf of that person or persons. But thirdly, it's us who votes that in that process. So Paul says in 1 Corinthians 5 verse 4, When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus and my spirit is present, with the power of our Lord Jesus, you speaking to those saints in Corinth, you are to deliver this man to Satan for the destruction of the flesh. Or 2 Corinthians chapter 2, verses 6 through, 8, uh, 6 through 8. In that passage, Paul urges the whole church to readmit someone who has repented, who was previously expelled from the church, particularly uh, speaking of that church at Corinth, and who apparently had repented, that is, turned away from their sin, turned in faith to Christ. And so we see this in, in 2 Corinthians as an example that the congregation has the final say in matters of membership and discipline. And finally, it's, it's the case also with doctrine, what we believe as a local church. In Galatians chapter 1, verse 8, Paul says to the Christians in the churches, not just to the pastors, but the church, even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel contrary to the one that we preach to you, let him be accursed, anathema. And many other times in the New Testament, it is the church that is blamed, not just the leaders, the church, for bad teaching and for putting up with it. Again, something you might want to write down in your notes, check it out later, 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3-4 through 4, to support that. So ultimately, it is the church who is responsible for discipline, membership, and also doctrine. So the question for us this morning is this. Does this congregational authority help our unity as a congregation? Does it help our unity? Well, I think it's an emphatic yes. For one, the authority that we have as a church, as members, it gives us a great amount of stewardship. Like we're responsible for something. We're responsible for a, for a set of, uh, of truths, a standard. There's a responsibility, a sense that we have to answer to Jesus. We do, not just pastors. Now, obviously, that emphasis is stricter. It's greater in how they shepherd us, how they handle the word. But also, we're going to be held accountable to Jesus for how we fulfill our role. And if the health of the church is ultimately up to the leaders, we can just sit back and relax and enjoy life in a hammock. But if it's up to us, we should take an interest in the health of the body which should lead us to care about one another, those do one another passages, to love one another and do all that we can to pursue unity because a watching world is looking into our church. So let me ask you, what marks you? What marks myself? What, what are those characteristics that mark us? Is it the works of the flesh? Is it the fruit of the spirit? Is it a spirit of unity or disunity? So this authority, congregational authority, also fosters unity by enabling the congregation to protect the purity of the gospel. It's our duty more than anything, and that very gospel is what unites us as Christians. It's our duty as a church to protect the purity of the gospel, and so the congregation really serves as a fence, if you will, 
to protect the church against false teaching or to discipline a member who is in deliberate, unrepentant sin, wanting sin more than Jesus. I mean, think of, I mean, this analogy really doesn't fit for me for obvious reasons, but kind of think of the spotter that stands above someone who is bench pressing an extremely heavy weight, all right? Um, If the weight lifter is in danger, okay, the spotter, what does he do? He exerts his authority. He interrupts the exercise, and it's like you're just like barely, in my case, the bar, all right? You're doing that. The the spotter grabs the bar with the weights on it and makes sure that you're protected. He takes over. And so like that spotter, the congregation is the one called to safeguard the gospel and to make sure it's preserved and to make sure sound doctrine is intact. And this arrangement makes sense. Church history across the board has taught us that it's more likely for a few church leaders to go astray than a whole congregation of regenerate believers who know the gospel and are filled by God the Holy Spirit. Which leads us to one final topic, relationship. What is the balance between elder leadership and congregationalism? What is the balance? We've seen that in Scripture, uh, the idea of elder leadership in the church, which is stated in Hebrews 13 among many other uh, Scriptures, Uh, that members should obey their leaders and submit to their authority, and yet we've also seen that Scripture gives the congregational final say on matters of significance. And if we just stopped there and didn't unpack the question, you would see that there's unavoidable tension. It almost seems like an apparent contradiction. So it raises two further questions. First, what about other matters that arise in the life of the church besides discipline, doctrine, and membership? What about it? How much further a congregation decides to involve itself corporately in matters of staff hiring, budgets, missions, and so forth, it's really just left to this, and I'm sure it's an unpopular answer or a dissatisfying answer for some people, but it's just prudence and wisdom. Prudence and wisdom. The second question is, how can we be obedient to the biblical command to obey and submit to our leaders and at the same time Exercise our membership responsibility of guarding the purity of the gospel, the idea of serving in that spotter role. Well, one helpful way to think about it is really to consider how serious the matter is and whether the matter is clear or not. And if it's not very unclear, that's a, kind of a different story. So let's say that, that, that here, here's a particular issue, that the Bible, we're questioning whether the Bible is the inspired word of God, okay, or just parts of the Bible are inspired. The issue is both serious and clear. The Bible in its entirety is inerrant and it's inspired. And so this is the kind of clear doctrinal issue that if the elders teach something false, and I mean, I I don't see that, but I mean, that would be rough. The congregation should not defer to them. The congregation rather should step to home plate and start swinging. That's right. This is, where the con- <laughs> this is where the congregation has the duty to step in as the spotter to preserve the integrity of the gospel. Now, what if, on the other hand, the issue is whether the congregation should approve the elder's recommendation that a prospective member be admitted into membership? Well, this also is a serious issue, but in most cases, it won't be clear to the congregation because all of us can't get to know exhaustively every single person, which is why we have those elder interviews with various elders to uh, look at their personal testimony closely. That's why you see at the quarterly church conference, by the way, when you see various elders who have uh, interviewed prospective members, they kind of give that evaluation of uh, when they got saved, how they're walking with the Lord, what are their beliefs, and so forth. And so it's just kind of our duty to trust them. And so this is the kind of area for which it's just really important for the congregation to just kind of trust our elders in that process. Are you going to ask a question? I'm going to wrap up quick so we can get some of them. Because I like your questions, man. Membership does require congregational approval. And so we should make as informed a decision as possible. And if we have good reason to doubt the elder's recommendation, we should let them know. And let me just add this. It's not even in my notes. Our elders are imperfect. All right. I mean, on, on this side of eternity... Uh, and beyond, the, the only person who is perfect, uh, again, is the good shepherd. It's, it's Christ. Mm-hmm. 
And so uh, w- w- did most of the body at that time try to step up saying, absolutely not? All right, well, praise God for you exercising your duty. It's not always easy, by the way. One hundred percent. And if you have people, you know, uh, I guess what I'm saying too is like, um, and I, I can't exhaustively speak into that situation, so I probably shouldn't even be speaking, but. What what I will what I would say is like, um, often our wives are are an extension of ourselves, and so he probably to some degree also bought into that. Hmm. Yeah. And it's, I mean, at the end of the day, it's our duty, you know, to preserve that. And let me clarify what I mean by, you know, wives being an extension of husbands and, and, and vice versa is, I mean, I, I, w- I would really hope that husbands and wives would be having spiritual conversations over truth every single day. And so... Um, so it shouldn't be, you know. <coughs> yes. Yeah. Well, praise God for that church. And also, uh, you know, when situations like that arise, even though, you know, again, that, that's a, an example for this sister, um, one thing we can't fail to, to, to forget is uh, if someone is teaching false doctrine, pray that, that that person or persons would repent. You know, like we like always have them on the forefront of your mind that God would grant them grace. And so uh, I'm going to close with this. <laughs> we love you, Howard. How can we as church members contribute to unity by participating in the decision-making process of the church? Just two final ways. First, we should take seriously the responsibility we have to guard against false teaching and error in the church. Uh, again, think of how the Bereans are described in Acts chapter 17, verse 11. Now, these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. So if you believe that there is doctrinal error taught from the pulpit, then you're responsible to learn more about that to go talk to an elder in person to find out what the pastor or elders believe on that point, and if the elders ever stray from our statement of faith, the congregation absolutely must step in because it's our duty to the sheep, and we can't do it if we're not in the Word. So that's my encouragement to you as sheep, as the congregation. Be a congregation, be a flock that's soaked in the Word of God. And last, go ahead. No, 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 don't apologize. Yeah. All right. So um, I, I, what I would say is like if it's a if it's a for the most part, first tier, sometimes a second tier doctrinal matter, 
I, th- I don't think that person is a nuisance, and I don't think it is a problem, and I think it's their duty to contact elders in, intently and say, hey, these are my concerns. This probably isn't just my concern, but a collective concern. But if it's a matter of, like, the color of carpet, yeah, then you, you probably are a nuisance. You know, uh, I know I would be, so... Um, So lastly, we should take seriously our membership privileges and duty and responsibilities, including our voting privilege. So we should attend church members' meetings, those quarterly church conferences, and we should be participating in various votes that come up. And that is another way I think we as a congregation can promote unity in the body, by voting along with the rest of the congregation on important matters, such as approving the budget or electing new elders. We are showing our agreement, assuming that we agree, with the elders and the rest of the church on these actions. And so as we reflect on authority as the church, let's not forget that we only have this authority because Christ laid down his life for us. He was delivered over to death for our sins, was raised to life for our justification, and it is his example of humility that we follow as we govern this church, his church for God's glory. For by Christ's blood alone, he purchased us, elders Deacons, all sheep. And we must not forget, elders are sheep. Deacons are sheep. We are sheep. Never forget that, my friends. And may, may, may that sense of weightiness, the shed blood of Jesus, be on the, front, the forefront of your mind as you submit to our pastors in joy, get alongside deacons to serve in eagerness, and love one another as members. So praise be to him. Let's pray. God, your word... Um, You call us to meditate on that word, on your law, day and night. And so, Father, as we think about church governance, help us meditate on that topic day and night so that we can have a better, a biblical understanding of who elders are, how are they to function, who deacons are, how they are to function, and who we are as your church and how we are to function. Lord, rather than being marked by disunity, help us as sheep, as members, as the flock of God, be marked by unity to submit with joy And again, uh, to to consider that we are to be protecting membership, discipline, and doctrine, and, um, and that should never go compromised. Father, help us just continue to protect the purity of the gospel. And speaking of that gospel, we pray that Trey is very clear with the gospel this morning. We pray that he is bold and clear with the word, and that just like the Puritans, we pray that he would receive unction from on high, that he would be empowered to preach the word Um, that he is going to deliver in the pulpit this morning. And in Christ's name we pray this. Amen.